0: Well, it is hard to believe, but tonight we are transitioning to the end of Ephesians. It's not the last sermon, so... <laughs> Three more years, well, hopefully not. This is sermon number 38, so I didn't know that was possible to teach that many sermons in Ephesians. So. Um, but we are transitioning to the end, so you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. And it's really, this is the culmination of this incredible letter, the climax, where we're, where we're headed tonight. And it's, it's hard to believe, if you've been with us through this study, that this letter could get any more intense or any more glorious than what we've already seen. Uh, this letter is full of glorious metaphors for the church. And these metaphors help us understand who we are, what He's called us to. So just think about some of these metaphors that we've already seen. We say this almost every week, but Paul's very clear that we are God's resurrected new humanity in Christ. He's clear that we're being recreated into the image of God now as we were intended to be in the beginning. And now that, we're, that we have been recreated, we're, we're learning to live out that new life, that new identity progressively today on the earth, right now. So we're His new humanity. We're His end-time temple, Paul says in chapter 2, the divine residence for the Lord Himself, the very display of His glory on earth. just like the Shekinah glory filled the first temple, so His Holy Spirit now fills this end-time temple, the church. And as a result of that, we display the brilliance of His glory in our transformed lives that we're now living. We who once loved sin, and we did, and we hated Christ, we now love Christ, and we hate sin. We pursue forgiveness now instead of animosity and grudges gossip. We work hard instead of being lazy. We're generous instead of hoarding. We're pure instead of sexually immoral. We strive for wisdom. We're reversing the curse in our families, Paul says in chapter 5, and in our work relationships, chapter 6, and it's all to the glory of God. So I'm coming to the end of this book, and I'm thinking, how can it get any more significant than this? I'm actually sad about ending the book. I kind of like want to go back and re-preach it again, but I won't do that. <laughs> I really am like kind of sad. Um, I was talking with Christy this week in the office about that. How can it get any more significant? Well, it does. Paul wants to add one more metaphor to the church. One more way of, of viewing the Christian life to sort of tie it all together for us and really set the church ablaze for mission. He wants these Ephesians, and then anybody that's reading it us today that have worked through this letter, studied it just like he's commanded. He wants us to realize that by virtue of our salvation, we have been swept up into the winning side of a great cosmic battle. The battle for the souls of humanity. Whether we realize it or not, and he wants us to realize it, but whether we do or not, we participate in this battle every day. And Paul desperately wants us to see what this battle is. As Christ knew and resurrected humanity, the church is his army. His army. We are empowered by him to progressively overthrow Satan and his hordes. As others come to faith and grow in Christ. As more churches are planted and established. And the point is, we we are very much at war. On a conquest, every day. And this comes with some incredible implications for how we should approach our lives. Now, this is the classic text about spiritual warfare. Can I hear that term thrown around today? Spiritual warfare. And and what Paul says here about it is actually very incredible, and it guards us from at least two extremes, two sides of the spectrum that are sadly very common in, in evangelicalism today. So on one side of the spectrum, this passage is often misinterpreted, and it takes on a life of its own, and it actually ends up contradicting some of Paul's teachings elsewhere. The idea of this sort of spiritual warfare is enshrouded in mystery and fear, As one author said, some Christians envision spiritual warfare as a scary movie with ghosts and bizarre special effects. Others kind of remove any personal responsibility for sin by attributing everything to the devil. You know, the devil made me do it kind of idea. As we're going to see, the devil and his hordes are very, very formidable foes. But they are one of three problems that we have, according to Ephesians 2. The world, the flesh, and the devil, number three. He's one of three. Paul's teaching in this letter is going to help us avoid that extreme of sort of wild teaching on spiritual warfare and kind of bizarre practices that come along with it. But on the other side of that extreme, which I think we're probably more prone to in this church, and likely because of those abuses on the other side, some pastors barely even mention the role of Satan or the demonic realm in the Christian life. And beyond that, on a practical level, we often don't even think about what's happening in the heavenlies right now. As if we, we, what we can see is the only thing that exists, as is 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 though it, this is the only reality that's at play. And as one... Counselor says, David Paulson. he says, We often don't envision the battle we are in at all. We don't live in the reality that we are up against forces bigger than ourselves, forces that are highly deceptive, and forces that are vying for our allegiance. I thought it was well said. That's from a, a tiny little book called Safe and Sound by David Paulson, And it's, it's, he uses this text. And it's just really helpful teaching on spiritual warfare and application, safe and sound, David Paulson. But if if Paul's teaching this paragraph really begins to permeate our hearts, if we really lean in, it becomes part of the lens that we use to see our lives and the world that we live in, we're going to see some incredible things start to happen. Instead of living lives that sort of meander without much urgency we're going to realize that every day is significant in this cosmic battle. Every day is full of opportunities to either advance Christ's rule or allow satanic influence. If we hear Paul with faith tonight, he'll wake us up and help us get after the mission and be part of this battle in the way that Christ intends. And then with that, this passage will flood our often mundane lives. You guys feel that sometimes? Like, what is my life about? You know, this sort of the, the monotony. It will flood this mundaneness with a sense of destiny, with a sense of kingdom purpose. When I was younger, I used to watch Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and all those, those fun stories. I still like those stories, by the way. And sometimes I would, I would, if I was honest, finish, that, finish a, a series like that, and I would think, "Man, wouldn't it be cool to like, be part of something like that?" Like that's pretty epic. But the reality is I mean it's funny as silly as that sounds for an adult male to be thinking that way secretly in his heart. <laughs> the reality is we are swept up in something that is far more glorious than anything we could imagine. It is far more dangerous than anything we could dream. It is far more significant. It's the most significant battle on earth, and it's the battle for human souls, the battle for the ultimate conquest of the gospel. It's the battle for the obedience of the nations to Christ. It happens every day. And Paul wants you to see that in the monotony of life, you're part of the battle. So that's what tonight's all about. If you want to boil this passage down, you could summarize this, this final, these final commands is really what this passage, is. like four or five commands in this passage. You could boil it down to a call to stand against Satan for the advance of Christ's mission on earth. Stand against Satan for the advance of Christ's mission on earth. Stand in resistance. Stand in advancement. And tonight we're going to look at the the first half of this passage where Paul lays out some essential insights that we've got to know if we're going to stand. If we want to be faithful, if we want to be faithful in this mission, we have to know these insights. If we don't have these insights, we won't stand faithfully. We won't be battle ready will be like soldiers dropped into a firestorm in enemy territory without any preparation. So as you can see on the screen, I'm calling this these next few sermons um, The Cosmic Battle, Standing for the Advance of Christ. And tonight we're going to look at five essential insights. Insights about this cosmic battle. Insights that are going to help us stand firm in the face of satanic onslaught. So if we're going to stand in the battle and in advancing God's mission, we must initially receive the Messiah's strength. We must receive the Messiah's strength. So Paul's getting at right out of the right out of the bat here. So let me just read the whole passage and then we'll, we'll jump in. He says in verse 10 finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, And also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the first thing Paul says here if we're going to stand in verse 10 is we have to receive the Messiah's strength or as he says it here, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So right out of the gate, Paul reminds us of our need for strength. Strength is found in the mighty strength of our Lord Jesus. And it's a subtle reminder, isn't it, that we can do nothing apart from Christ, like he says in John 15, 5. We're weaklings in ourselves when it comes to standing against satanic onslaught, and we've got to know that. So he calls us to be strengthened, to find strength, to, to receive it. Now, it's, it's an interesting command if you think about it, Right? It's passive. He's commanding us to allow something to happen to us. Be strengthened. You can't strengthen yourself. You have to be strengthened. It's a passive command, and it it means strength has to come from outside of us. We can't dig down deep and strengthen ourselves, in other words. So, next question. Logically, how do we get this strength? (laughs) It comes from outside of us. Well, notice what he says. He says we're to be strengthened in two arenas, in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So, in the Lord, in the strength of His might. He adds that second little phrase, in the strength of His might, because Paul wants to remind us just how strong our Lord is. And there's our first hint. He wants to remind us that that Christ's mighty strength is leveraged for us weak little believers. And when we remember just how strong our Lord is and how his strength is leveraged for us, for our good, it's leveraged over Satan and over his diabolical schemes, guess what happens? We are strengthened. We grow confident, not in ourselves, but in Christ's power that he promises to exercise for the good of all who believe in him. All right, let me, let me illustrate this. you got the third grader on the playground. He is intimidated and demoralized by the sixth grade bully who is bigger, stronger than him, even has a little bit of facial hair. But if he knows that his dad... His strong dad is standing on the other side of the fence, watching and ready to help him. What happens? He's filled with some strength, isn't he? Filled with some renewed zeal and boldness to stand up to this bully because dad's there. He's strengthened, in other words, by his dad's strength. He's not strong, but he knows his dad's going to swoop in and help him. So now there's a swagger in the, in the third grader that wasn't there before. Same is true for us, except for the swagger. Paul knows that it's hard for us to believe how incredibly strong Christ is. We talk about that, but we don't really believe it. It's hard for us really to embrace that God's power really is leveraged for us for our good. So, Paul knows that. So, what does he do in the beginning of this letter? Well, he prays for us that we would understand that, that God would help us to understand the level of power that we have in God toward us, that it's leverage, to us for, or this leverage for, for us for our good. So, listen to what Paul prays back in chapter 1. If you want to turn back there, you can, you can check this out. Chapter 1, verse 19. I just I'll, I'll add some context here. He says, I pray that you would know, dot, dot, dot. Verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So I'm praying that you would know this. God's got to reveal this to you, how great his power is toward you. So I'm praying that he would do it. That you would know this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Okay, so that's the same phrase, the great might. And the ESV translates that it's literally according to the power of his strength. That's the same phrase that's in our passage in Ephesians six: according to the strength of his might, or in the strength of be strengthened in the strength of his might. It's the same. It's that same little phrase in our passage. So according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is saying. Ephesians, I am praying that God would help you understand the magnitude of his power that's leveraged for you. And now in chapter six, he's calling us to be strengthened by this knowledge. Does it make sense? But just how strong is Christ? Especially when it comes to Satan and his hordes on earth. Well, if we're staying in chapter one, just keep going in the text. Paul tells us that Christ has been seated in the heavenlies, keep going, far above, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. In other words, Christ is far above every other being in authority and power like far above, far and away above every of these incredibly powerful satanic beings. Nobody can touch the Lord Jesus. He governs everything according to his will. That's what this is saying. He even governs Satan. Now, this should be incredibly strengthening for us. Okay? Why? Well, because Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, that Satan once had complete sway over us. And we were once totally held captive to our dark Lord, completely under His influence, dominated by our fears and fleshly desires, whether we recognize it or not. That's what he says here in chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following Kien, the following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was us. But the Holy Spirit has has done an an incredible work. When When you heard the gospel and you recognized your need for Christ, when that happened to you, however it happened to you, Then Christ came in. Christ forgave. You turned from yourself to Him. You were instantly united to Christ. The Holy Spirit claimed you as His own. That's what it means when He sealed you. Freeing you from Satan's dominion. Chapter 1, verse 13. But why did you believe when you heard the Gospel? Paul says... By His mighty power and His unfathomable love, Christ resurrected you from death to life. The Gospel came to you and He gave you new life. He opened your ears and that's why you believed. And as incredible as that is, Paul takes it further in chapter 2. That's not all he says about what happened to you at your conversion. Not only were you made alive, but you were... Verse 6, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that in the most fundamental sense, we have been exalted and enthroned above every evil being because we are united to Christ. So it, 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 mean, it has a couple different dimensions. Okay? It means we're eternally safe. So in that sense, we ourselves are untouchable because we're protected in the Lord Jesus. We're above them. So whatever happens to us happens by decree of the Lord who controls all. So we're safe in him. He can't ultimately get us. Satan doesn't have the power to take us off the throne and put us into hell. That's not possible, even though that's what we deserve. We are eternally safe. And it means not just that we're safe. Here's the kicker. It means that we are in a position of authority above them. That's what he's, when he's talking about seated with Christ. Seated where? On the throne. When is this happening? Right now. Will we be seated with Christ later to, to reign physically on earth? Yes, but we are seated now in the heavenlies with Christ according to Ephesians 2. We have access, in other words, to Christ's power over the demonic realm so our success in the battle is sure. Are you tracking? This is, this is baseline. If we don't get this, then nothing else is going to flow. So you can see how important this is and why Paul went to such great lengths earlier in the letter to unpack this theme for us. Because now Christ's strength as described here is what we draw on to be strengthened by Him and we're going to need it so that when Satan fiercely roars, when the onslaught comes and it will. That we don't cower in fear or flee in faithlessness. We have to know his strength. If we're going to stand, we must have Christ's strength pulsating in our hearts. We must know Satan is not ultimate. I am enthroned above him. Christ will win the victory through me. And that's our first insight. We must receive the Messiah's strength. Now, more on this in a minute, okay, in terms of how we battle, okay? Next, he goes into you know, anticipating our questions, right? We must appropriate the divine weaponry. So we've got his strength, and we want, we, want to, we want to be strengthened by that, but we need to appropriate, then, the divine weaponry. Look in verses or verse 11, we'll start there, back, back in chapter 6. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, dot, dot, dot. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So You see those two commands. So, um, put on the armor and take up. The armor. Verse 11, verse 13. Twice in these verses, Paul tells us to appropriate God's complete armor. Verse 11, he tells us to put it on. Verse 13, to drive the point home, he tells us to take it up. So what is this armor? Well, there's a a few things we could sort of observe as we look at this passage. All right, I've listed a few of them out for you. This armor or weaponry is what I'll call it. The weaponry is surprisingly ordinary. Surprisingly ordinary. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit in the passage, but Paul's going to spell out exactly what the armor is, beginning in verse 14. It's things like truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. No exorcisms. Right? No, it's ordinary. We're going to unpack each of these more in depth next week. I just want you to notice now how how basic these things are. He doesn't tell us to arm ourselves with exorcism abilities or special chants or anything like that. He tells us to arm ourselves with the normal means of grace. You see that? He wants our church to be drenched with truth in our minds and in our hearts. He wants us to be confident in Christ's righteousness and to reflect that righteousness in our own character, in our relationships in the body and in the world. He wants wants us to cultivate faith in God's purposes and promises. He wants us to grow in intercessory prayer for each other and for the advance of the mission. It's weaponry, yes, and very powerful weaponry that we don't often realize, but it's metaphorical. The weapons we use to defeat Satan in the advance of Christ's kingdom are none other than the radically normal means of grace. So, in a way, you've already been prepared, you're being prepared, even now. So, there's a lot more we can say on that, and we will next week. But the weaponry also comes from God. The weaponry comes from God. It's God's armor. That's what this text says. The armor of God. We're going to look at this again more next week, but but when we think of the armor of God, we tend to think Roman centurion for the imagery, right? But as we're going to see next week, Most of the armor imagery is taken directly from Isaiah. From the depiction of God and the Messiah, who does battle and he works salvation on behalf of his people. That's very interesting. The messianic warrior king works this salvation. He does this battle. and The point is then that the armor is God's armor And it's what the Messiah used to overcome our mortal enemy. And it's what we'll continue to to use in the conquest as we bring the nations into obedience to Christ. These are our weapons. And notice also we don't need to add anything to this armor because it's complete. And that's our, our next description of the armor. The weaponry is completely sufficient. So, our your translations, my translation. I don't, I don't know what yours says, but mine mine describes it as the whole armor, right? What does yours say? Whole armor, full armor, yeah. So the idea there, the is you, you can kind of hear the pan, panoplia. We translate this word as complete armor. And it's the, it's the complete set of instruments that are used in defensive or offensive warfare. So there's a defensive and offensive element. And you hear that prefix pan, which is where we're getting the complete concept. Pan or pon in Greek means all. So when that's, that's prefixed to this word, it's, it, that's, that's the idea of the complete set of, of um, weaponry. Paul's telling us that we don't need anything else than what God provides in order to stand against satanic onslaught. We don't need anything else. We don't need anything else to advance successful counterattacks against Him. The Word, prayer, a righteous life, these are the kinds of things that are the divine means that people are converted and changed and delivered from death and satanic oppression and the enslavements of the flesh. These are the means. And I say this often, but it's worth repeating, and we can talk about it later, but we don't need psychology or any other supplement in order to flourish as believers or advance God's mission. That's not part of the armor. According to Paul, we have the complete armor already provided from God Himself. Do we see that? All right. notice, not only is it comprehensive and sufficient, But the weaponry is both defensive and offensive. The weaponry is both defensive and offensive. And I think often we miss the the offensive aspect of the armor um, because of the verbiage in the text. I mean, it kind of lends itself to more of a defensive posture. And we think we're just supposed to sort of stand more passively against Satan instead of actually launch out and counterattacks. But the whole point of the passage is to launch out in counterattacks. Both are envisioned in this weaponry, in the very word itself. It's offensive and defensive. Paul pictures protective gear like helmets and shields, but he also describes offensive gear like the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And by implication, he tags on intercessory prayer, even though he doesn't give um, a description for that, like a, another metaphor parallel. He just says praying, you know, essentially interceding for, for, for the mission. But those are our offensive weaponry, if you want to go with, the, go with the metaphor. So just making that observation, it's both defensive and offensive. And then finally, the weaponry must be personally appropriated. It's been provided to us from God, freely. So There's nothing we do to earn the weaponry. But we have to actually put it on. We have to actually use it. We have to get comfortable with it. have got to take it up, verse 13, if we're going to stand against Satan. Our weaponry won't, weaponry won't do us any good laying on the closet floor in an attack. Even though we own it. We have to learn to use the weapons and to clothe ourselves with this kind of protection. So how do we do this? Well, again, in the coming next week, we're going to look in detail at this, so I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit, um, but we can answer this question, like how do we appropriate the armor, really in, in a couple ways. He's going to tell us in the second half of this passage as he continues the armor metaphor explicitly, but I think what Paul wants us to see, maybe another way we can answer this question, is the call to arm ourselves to stand against Satan is essentially another way of saying what he's been telling us through the entire back half of this letter. Okay? It's the same thing he's already already told us. Now, how do I know that? Why would I say that? Well, does this command to put on sound like anything else you've heard in Ephesians? Yeah? What is it? Put on the new man, right, from Ephesians 4. Totally, Ephesians 4.24, we've, we've heard that before. That's our, our central responsibility as the new humanity, so if we're staying on that metaphor, the new humanity is to put on the new man, to learn to appropriate the new identity that we have in Christ by living, living like Christ in the world as the new humanity, to put that on. So you see the parallels here. And the new humanity we've been given in Christ has been created after the likeness of God in, notice these words, the righteousness and holiness that comes from the truth. So you've got righteousness and truth. Two more words that appear in our armor of God passage. As we renew our minds in chapter 4, we learn to live the way that God intends. So again, just just trying to map some connections here. Let me give you one example that Paul gives of spiritual warfare in the context of the church back in chapter uh, four. Remember how he told us that we need to deal with uh, our anger quickly in the church? You remember that? And you got to go back a little bit. This, if you do. This, if you don't. Okay. Wow. Blanks. All right. <clears throat> well, he did. In chapter 4, 20 messages ago, well, what happens if we don't deal with our anger? Yeah, if we don't deal with it, we give the devil an opportunity. That's what Paul says. We give the devil, or more literally, a place of influence in our church when we don't deal with the anger. Whoa, this means that spiritual warfare is happening as we deal with our anger and as we cultivate patterns of forgiveness and reconciliation. You see that? You might even say this is an outworking of the breastplate of righteousness as we learn to deal with one another in righteous ways to honor the Lord in the way that we reconcile when we're angry. Satan's booted out of our church, and Christ's mission in our church advances. So, why do I bring that up? I think Paul is saying the same thing here in our, our text in Ephesians 6, that he's just using a different metaphor to do it. Does it make sense? He's bringing out, the, then this metaphor is necessary for us to hear because it brings out the urgency and the stakes of what we're involved in. So we could say it like this. To appropriate the armor is to learn the truth in the context of the church and is to trash the old satanic ways of living and get after the new Christ-like ways of living. And to do this, or as we do this, let me say it that way, as we do this, we are equipped to stand against Satan's schemes. And this leads us to our third insight. It's essential that we've got to know. If we're going to stand. We've got to understand our enemy. We have to understand our enemy. In verse 11. We put on the armor of God so that we may be able to stand against Keen, the schemes of the devil. If we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, we've got to know who the real enemy is and what he's up to, and we don't want to underestimate his power. Look with me again, just in verse 11. Paul teaches us a number of things we need to know about our enemy, but initially he says we've got to know that our enemy specializes in deceptive propaganda. i don't think of a way to say it. It's just kind of not normal, okay? This just kind of help us get it. He specializes in deceptive propaganda. He says here, in verse 11, that we stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. That's why we need the armor, because it helps us stand against those, those schemes. It's this... This is fundamentally an attempt at deception, at at diabolical misinformation, at satanic propaganda. It's a battle for the minds of human beings, a battle for what they believe to be true, a battle over whether or not they will heed the word of God, their creator. And we of all people on earth, we must understand that our enemy is fundamentally Deceptive. We have to know that, and it doesn't help that in our flesh we're susceptible to the deception, even as believers. Back in chapter four, verse twenty-two, Paul tells us that our old man, the old humanity that we're trying to, we're learning how to kill and trash. That old humanity is corrupted by desires, these raging desires that we have that are springing from deceit. So again, if you don't know that verse, that is key. 422. Our old man, the old you that you still hanging around, is corrupted, and it's corrupted because there's all these churning desires, these sinful desires coming up out of you, and you want the wrong things because you're deceived. That's what 422 says. This means that we're weak in ourselves, we're undiscerning in ourselves, which means we can't trust ourselves at all. We have to be suspect of what we think, of what we feel, and only rely on what comes to us objectively from the pages of Scripture. From the inspired apostles like Paul, who were appointed by Christ to get God's truth to God's people. Does that make sense? And that's also why the local church is important, like we've seen in Ephesians. Because God has raised up pastors and teachers to clarify and promote the truth in the church, and then he's, that, that's being done to equip a healthy and maturing congregation to reverberate that truth. Why? So that Satan's lies and his propaganda campaign are quickly exposed. That was chapter 4. And that's why Paul is so passionate about every single church member speaking the truth with his neighbor. Chapter 4, verse 25. Let each one of you speak the truth. Each one of you. Each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Because the truth is our only antidote to the propaganda. And we desperately need each other because guess what? When we're deceived, we don't know it. That's the essence of deception. So we need each other. We're a body. So we've got to realize that our enemy's crafty, that he specializes in this kind of deception. And Paul also says that our enemy is not human. It's not human. Verse twelve: For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now this sounds like a duh statement, right? You're like duh, he's not. We know he's not a human. Uh, Until we realize how much we need this. Paul knows that we're tempted to misdiagnose the ultimate enemy as other human beings. And to forget about the animating ultimate influences behind those human beings. Paul's not saying we don't have human enemies. He said that earlier in the letter. They're just not ultimate. Remember back to chapter 2, we just read that. Unbelievers are described there as quite literally following Satan. Like everybody. I had a conversation with a guy who was telling me a couple weeks ago that he was part of the occult, or had been, and I just took him to this passage and I said, look, brother, so was I. And at some, at some level, right? So we didn't have the same experiences, but according to Paul, we both were following Satan. And so we're tempted to believe that that, that humans are ultimate, but unbelievers here described as, as following Satan, meaning the devil is leading them, and he's blinded them with his lies, and they are marching to the beat of Satan's drum. So this means that if we're going to stand, we're not standing ultimately against other human beings, against other image bearers. We're from the same lot. Right, we're warring against Satan and his hordes, but we 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 so often forget this. Like in the in, in the practical, daily spheres of life, we get angry at our unbelieving coworkers, uh, we get angry at annoying family members, we get angry at inconsiderate roommates. Like we just angry, 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 and we mis- we're mista- we're mistaken. We think they are the enemy when they are not. Did you know this even happens in marriage? Looking around for my better half? It does. But honestly, look, one reorienting truth that Mary and I have used in the heat of arguments is the truth that we are not enemies. Might feel like it, but we're not. Knowing that Satan and sin are our real enemies de-escalates arguments. It cools tempers. It helps us to restore and and get after the real threat to our souls, the real issues that are plaguing us. So we've got to renew our minds here and see that the satanic activity is behind sin and sinful people. This doesn't absolve people from their own personal responsibility. Remember, the devil is one, one of three problems that we have. We are one of those problems in our flesh. So it doesn't absolve us from responsibility. Instead, it helps us, realizing this, helps us to be patient with other image bearers. It helps us to take pity on them. It helps us to show mercy to them. It helps us to seek to help them to see their deception for their own sake. Satan wants to kill them. Like, that's his goal. And they have no idea, no idea. So this changes things, doesn't it? Changes the way we think about our enemies. And Paul knows that, which is why he reorients us here. That we don't, we're not battling. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But one last thing he tells us about our enemy is that he or maybe they are way more formidable than we realize. So I'm saying he's very formidable. Verse twelve it says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but and now he gives a list against the rulers, number one, against the authorities, number two, against the cosmic powers, number three, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, number four. It's like why does he why does he list them out like this? I think the point of this long list is not to necessarily classify demons, but is I think he's piling up these descriptions of these evil beings to remind us just how significant Satan and his hordes are. Lest we have the swagger. They are the spiritual rulers and authorities. Likely, they're given those names because they exercise authority over human rulers currently. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, think about this. He offered Jesus the authority of all the kingdoms of the world because, quote, it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Luke 4, 6. That was Satan saying that. Now, obviously he's a deceiver, but Jesus doesn't correct him. So there is a very real sense that although God reigns sovereignly over everything, which he does, including Satan, he's his pawn, there is a real sense in which fallen humanity is under Satan's power. We could look at numerous texts, even in our current text right now. That's what Paul's getting at when he says that we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You see that in your text? They're the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Meaning, this age is an age of satanic darkness, it's in need of the inbreaking light of Christ. And the point of this long list is to keep us humble and dependent on the Lord as we realize the magnitude of the enemy. Satan is not omnipresent, but he has myriads of beings who work for him to carry out his murderous will and his propaganda campaign. They're all conniving and scheming, and they animate the movers and shakers of this age. They are far more powerful than we are and in control of the power structures of this world. And this realization is meant to, to drive us back to God. To snap us out of our lethargy and to get after arming ourselves for battle. The next time you struggle to get out of bed to read your Bible, envision satanic hordes seeking to deceive you outside of your door. We're getting close to what's accurate. Remember that you have very little chance against them apart from knowing God's truth. And this kind of desperation is what's going to drive you to your Bible. It's going to drive you to church. It's going to drive you to membership in a church. It's going to drive you to confessing your sin and getting help for it. This kind of vision of what you're up against. You have no hope apart from Christ. Zero. It's what it's going to drive us to. And now notice that that's, that's exactly Paul's point, I think, why he why he laid those those. Those terms out, that list of our formidable foes, because he wants us to drive it. He wants us to drive, he wants to drive us to putting on the armor of God. So he says in verse 13, therefore, in other words, in light of how formidable these foes are, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So I think that's the point. So we've got to understand our enemy. That's what Paul's saying. And our, our, that's our third essential insight. And don't worry, we're these are going to go quick. Number four, our fourth insight is we can't underestimate the battle's intensity. We can't underestimate the battle's intensity. Now, if you're saying, okay, well, where's, where, are you, where are you getting that from? Like, is that in the text? Yes. And I'm drawing this inside out more by implication from several words in this passage. Notice in the in the verse we just read that Paul tells us that there is an evil day coming. Okay? So he says, therefore take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. You see that? There's an evil day coming. Now you might be thinking, wait, aren't all the days evil? Uh, yes. They are. We are living in evil days, plural. But Paul, and he says that in chapter 5, verse 16, he calls all the days evil. Okay? But here, he said, he's talking about a coming evil day, singular. A day that he wants us to be ready for, to prepare for. If all the days are evil, which they are, all the days, if that's what he's envisioning, it's hard to prepare for them in the midst of evil days. It doesn't make sense. So there's one coming, I think, that he wants us to be ready for. So what's he talking about? Well, I know that Paul would agree that we engage in a form of spiritual warfare every day. I mean, yes, that's that's key, because we battle temptation every day. But, I think Paul understands that even all the demonic hordes can't be everywhere at one time. And he understands that there are particular days of temptation, particular seasons of crushing pressure towards sin, particular times that you're tempted to believe in lies. You may be in one right now. But Paul's point is, I think... That he wants us to realize that these kinds of days or a day like this is coming for you and is coming soon, may already be here for each one of us. There's a, an evil day on the horizon, a day in which the battle will be especially intense and we need to be ready for it. This whole point, as he, as he draws this, this to a close. So there's an evil day coming. Put that up there, I think. Yep. So it's just implying that the battle is going to be intense. And then another way that we see that the battle is going to be intense is this word that he uses, struggle. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Back in verse 12. So I'm kind of, kind of bringing that forward here. He wants us to see that our battle is not going to be an easy one. Some, some people call, say, it, uh, the ESV translates it as wrestle. We wrestle against, you know not flesh and blood, but against these other things. The word has the idea of a close physical combat. Close physical combat, an intense struggle against a strong enemy. In other words, Paul's telling us that victory is not going to come easy. Even though we're enthroned with Christ, we have his power, you know, all those things, it's not going to be easy. We've got to scrap at it, we're going to get punched in the mouth and laid out on our backs from time to time. Struggle. Hand-to-hand combat. But we can't let that rattle us. Or cause us to give up. The Lord would have us spit out that tooth, get back up in repentance, and go back at the fight with hope. You say, hope? Like, <laughs> how is that hopeful? Right? You're telling me I'm going to get the snob out of I me in sanctification. Yes. But, you're fighting back. You're not just getting punched, but you're punching the satanic cords with the infinite power of Christ. Every act of obedience, every act of faith, every step in sanctification, every time you disseminate the truth, every intercessory prayer you pray, you doing battle. You are at war in the power of Christ using His weaponry. You are on the offensive in this present darkness, walking as children of light, extending the Messiah's light in the world. And we can't forget that in the most fundamental sense, He's already won the battle, hasn't He? He's already won that ultimate battle. So that means that even if Satan kills you in the fight, guess what? You're going to be resurrected. Raised from the dead, and you will tread over him and crush his head. Paul says this in Romans 16. He says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. allusion back to Genesis 3. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But if we think it's supposed to be easy, if we underestimate the intensity of the battle, we're setting ourselves up for defeat. I mean, just think about that. We think sanctification is supposed to be easy. And when it's not, we give up. Right? Right? We're setting ourselves up for fear. We're setting ourselves up for self-pity. We're setting ourselves up for anxiety and depression. If we don't understand, battle's going to be intense. So don't let Satan have the upper hand in the battle. Don't let him catch you off guard by the intensity, by his roar. Arm yourself, knowing it will be intense, but also knowing that Christ is with you And he's resourcing you for the battle. And that brings us to our last um, insight. Very brief. If we're going to stand, we must be thoroughly prepared. Which is sort of like where this whole thing has been flowing, right? Uh, We've got to be thoroughly prepared. And this is flowing out of everything Paul's told us already. And again, why it's the exclamation point and really kind of giving us a vision for everything he said in the letter already. But since that day is coming, that evil temptation, uh, likely even tomorrow, we must be in the preparation process today. The moment of temptation is not the time to prepare. Did you say that? It's 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 too late, at least for that moment. Now it's not irredeemable because the Lord often teaches us that way. We're ill prepared, uh, and now we learn, right? And we go back to the go back to the scriptures. Uh, But but you did miss that opportunity to stand in that that case. And that's essentially what Paul's saying here. He's saying, having done all, you see that at the very end of verse 13, having done all, stand. That's the having done all. He's saying, be thoroughly prepared in in putting on the armor. And that's going to enable you to stand. So next week, we're going to discuss um, what thorough preparation looks like in the remaining verses of this paragraph we 're going to kind of flesh that out real practical um, using the the grid of the armor of God um, but tonight i just I just wanted to um, give you this grid give you these essential insights that you've got to have if you 're going to do battle and I want you to see your life as as this incredible um, cosmic battle these we've been enlisted and sort of swept up into so may this vision just seep into your heart this week may it inform you um, as you go about your day-to-day may it just flood your mundane moments with significance and um i'm just so excited to see everything the lord is going to do and has done even through this letter in our lives and um, just all the ways he's working in your hearts i mean there's so many ways we could think about applying this and what this is going to look like but um, we'll just cut it here and um We'll pick it up next week. Father, thank you for your clear word. Thank you for the tremendous honor of being enlisted into battle, taking conquest um, with the glorious news of the gospel, having our, feast, our feet um, ready with the, the gospel of peace as we're going to see next week. and We're just thankful for the privilege Lord, we know we're aware of our, of our failings, of how we're unaware often of the battle. So I pray that this week, um, even from my own heart, that you would make me more aware in those, those, those grinded out areas, um, the areas that I want to avoid or I disdain doing. Um, help us to see those areas as um, areas where we can advance your cause and your mission and fly the flag of Christ. And, um, and recapture part of our, our world for you. We prayed in Christ's name.